I'm Gerhard Lazu, and you're listening to ShipIt.show, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and Audi. I don't think that you can imagine just how excited I was to find out that Audi, my favorite car company, has a Kubernetes competence center. We have Sebastian Kister joining us today to tell us why people, followed by tech, make the process. The right thing to focus on is the genuine smiles that people give you in response to something that you do or say. That is an important SLI and SLO for reducing friction between silos. So how does that impact the flow of artifacts that end in production systems which design and build cars? Big thanks to our partners Fastly and Fly. This MP3 is served with minimal latency from the Fastly Edge location which is closest to you. Our app and database run on fly.io because it keeps things simple. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. Get instant visibility into the health of your software, actionable, real-time insights into the quality and the performance of your web and mobile apps. And I'm here with John Daniel Trask, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. JD, how does the interface of Raygun help a team see progress? Because sometimes progress is better than simply goals. You know, the goal is to have high-performing software, of course, but the progress to get there is not easily measured or celebrated along the way. Yeah, this is something that I often find I end up speaking with more at the executive level with some customers because it's also important to remind folks that aren't necessarily software engineers that, you know, bugs are common. You know, it's not the team's fault that there are bugs. And that's where we go back to the trajectory thing. Like, are we actually making progress? So sometimes the work we're doing with folks, we present like an error inbox where we group things up so that you're not having to deal with every single instance. You can work at the sort of root cause level. And so that just looks really familiar, almost a little bit like Gmail, but you've got some charts, some beautiful attractive charts that will show you how you're going. It could be an engineering manager, it could be a QA leader, it could be anybody that can kind of say, look, the chart is going down towards the right. You know, that's what we want to be doing. Less, less errors, or we want to get the response times up. Similarly, you want to make sure that you're presenting that data in the most scientific way. So no averages, you know, just just use medians, P99s. I want to understand the outliers, you know, averages are just lies. So get the real data, understand where you are and just start chipping away at it. Very cool. Thank you, JD. All right. Head to raygun.com to learn more and start your free 14 day trial. No credit card required. Join thousands of customer centric software teams who use Raygun every single day to deliver flawless experiences to their customers. Again, raygun.com. We are going to ship in three, two, one. I want to start by thanking Taylor for kicking this one off. Today I'm able to bring two of my great passions together, cars and technology. And it's not just any car, it's my favorite car, Audi, and my favorite type of technology, cloud native. And I cannot think of a better partner for this episode than Sebastian Kister from Audi, specifically the product team lead for the Kubernetes Competence Center. Sebastian? Welcome to Ship It. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So why Audi? You mean uh, why I chose to work for Audi? 
or where we join. You can answer it in whichever way you want. Okay. Like the first thing that comes to your mind, and then I can ask a more specific question. But why Audi for you? Well, I've been a decade in startups, ranging from privacy by design data infrastructure startup to IP television startup, which uh, we brought from the first customer to 1.25 million customers in just two years. And after that, there were like many possibilities uh, to join different companies, but I wanted to go to where I came from. Actually, I'm born in Ingolstadt and I wanted to get away from Munich. So uh, in Ingolstadt, you have two companies and uh, the most famous one is probably Audi. There are a couple of more companies, small companies, um, yeah. but... What's the other one, by the way? Because that's the only one I know. Yeah, the other one is, is Media Saturn, uh, which is uh, retail, like electronic retail uh, in Germany. But retail business is not really an end product I could identify with at all. And the Audi design language, um, this progressive uh, design, uh, the e-tron design, or in general, the Tron design from the movies in the 80s and, and today, this culture of foreseeing society in 20 years and imagining it and um, living from a design language from the future is something I totally loved. I love the, the backlights, the design cars. If you, I think we have met in a different uh, meeting before where I had this e-tron GT backlights as a background. I just uh, fully identify with the design language from Audi. So um, this was a great fit for us. And coming from startups, Audi obviously uh, wanted the expertise in an enterprise and create startups in an enterprise. And I said, yeah, I think we have a good match here. Let's do it. So I haven't mentioned this to many people, but now I think it's a, it's, it's a reveal moment. I know you like telling secrets too, or making things sound as if they're a secret. <laughs> but for me, it's the way the doors close. It's a really weird thing to say, but I think when you close an Audi door, it's just so different from anything else. And if there's like so much attention to detail in how the doors close, can you imagine how all the other things are? And that's what got me. I really liked the way the door shut. And then from there, it was the discovery process. In all honesty, my wife is a big Audi fan. And she said, we'll have a single car. It will be an Audi and it will be an estate. And you can choose whichever one you want. So that's how I went through an A4, an A6, an RS6, all is in estate. And I'm so happy. But there's something in the design, there's something in the detail that Audi does, which I haven't seen any other manufacturer do. And that's the why for me. Back to you, because this is about you. Let's be honest. <laughs> what is it like to work in a big company, in a big enterprise? It's over 600,000 employees. It's huge. What is it like? Yeah, the entire VW group with uh, direct and indirect employees is over 600,000. Audi, uh, specifically, the Audi group is 96,000, something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And only Ingolstadt, our um, main factory and uh, the business central, has 44,000 people. So, yeah, it is big. Still a big place. And I tell you the, the biggest advantage of it, it's awesome food. 
you get the right okay. food over there. It's really good. The campus. Really, I totally <laughs> enjoyed over there. <laughs> wow, okay. And apart from the great food, obviously, because um, I'm not going very, very often to, to the office, but when I do, I, I step by uh, the canteen and or one of the many canteens. There are like really many canteens. And they offer everything from very simple food to very sophisticated food. So obviously you have to choose your canteen that fits your, your desire, but there is something for everyone. And uh, working in a big company also gives you so many possibilities. And I tend to focus always on the positive things. I create something out of every free space that I find. I create something out of every uh, opportunity that I identify. That's just my, that, that's me. That's what I do. And that's why being in startups uh, was probably very beneficial to uh, work on that and elaborate that. But in Audi, I had like teams surrounding me that uh, were fostering this philosophy And I had a complete backing uh, to do the sort of startup culture in my teams as well, which is not everywhere the case. So I really must uh, say that we are, or we started as an exception because we wanted to change the culture. And obviously you can't change culture top down by saying, now we think different, won't work. So, um, Creating uh, germ cells in a, in a big enterprise and protecting them at all costs until they uh, can deliver and supply products, create value add, uh, create business, but as well have a, like a gravitational effect, a cultural gravitational effect to draw other people into that sort of working, sort of thinking. And I say... It is a critical mass now. We can absorb culturally projects when they onboard on our platform. So we are one end of a non-existing end-to-end responsibility in a silo-structured enterprise, but we can transfer our culture all the way to the other end. And it's appreciated a lot. So I found a lot of appreciation along the way for this sort of cultural change because it is a delivery process and it is a business. It is not like idealism and unparable idealism with the current situation. Mm. So when a project onboards onto your platform, that's how the transformation happens, is my understanding. You could say so, actually, because you need touch points. Um, to do so and you need to make people understand uh, the value that you bring to the table by Mm -hmm. our way of working and thinking and adjusting and putting people in the center of everything that we do actually so the focus is really on the people people first when you think transformation in enterprises what often happens is they processualize something think process first and impose something top down and well what happens is you change your address fields um, you change your departments you change maybe some managers but on an operational level nothing changes usually maybe sometimes when you say we have 
now agile methods we need to make an agile um, product creation process but it's again a process and even if you say we're working with uh, agile methods now um, often they are not like philosophically applied they're just followed processualized and that is that is just not the the transformation that's not a real transformation at all if you put the people first and then look at the tech that they want to explore so you have passionate people all over the place they you ask them what do you want to do what do you want to explore think of a product from scratch whatever you want to do and um, then you create out of what they want to do uh, business value because then some guy like me who creates startups or business cases uh, for epics and whatnot and brings back the passion of the people and makes a business out of that and uh, when you have passionate people exploring tech what happens naturally is a process that follows so you have people tech and then process because passionate people use great tech and once you automate the great tech the automation is the process it's a process um, prone to human error actually even and that's how we onboard projects to come back to the topic we onboard projects by enabling them in the bleeding edge technology actually enterprises never used bleeding edge technology they were afraid of it to say like early adopters not not with us but you can't be progressive you can't be audi yeah you can't be audi if you follow enterprise paradigm you need to be progressive in a very fast-paced environment and if you want to say that being progressive is an attitude or progress is an attitude, is an Audi hashtag, actually. If you want that and live up to that, you need to be bleeding edge, at least in the bottom layers. In the end, in the car, fair enough. I mean, there's uh, so much going on until a car is being built. But um, in, the, in the digital service portfolio, and we want to bring this customer excitement from the closing door sound, to the digital service portfolio as well. The engineering is unrivaled. It's amazing. And the love of detail our engineers have is very annoying for their managers, actually. I can imagine. <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't close properly enough. Now let's do test 1 million and 125,000. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So when a project onboards, and it comes into the Kubernetes Competence Center. How does that work? Like someone has an idea, someone's passionate about it. You're on the cutting edge of technology. And you say, we'll make this work. And you have great time doing it. We'll put a smile on your face, at least one. I can guarantee you that. There will be more. How does that work? Can you, can you run us through that? Uh, there, are, there are many, many dimensions to it, actually. It's, it's not like there's a, uh, that's a one-dimensional thing. But let me, let me go through it from, from the beginning. First, when we onboard someone and I say, just standard, standard workload, easy thing. Nothing bleeding edge. Let's separate uh, the onboarding process from being bleeding edge. And if you have an onboarding and you need to show someone how to create a container, for example, because it's the first time they work with Kubernetes. For them, that is bleeding edge already, probably. And then you have also 
something that we call shift left, you know, that you enable uh, projects in a sort of shared responsibility manner to take care of things before they happen in the cluster. For example, container image scanning, container runtime scanning. You can use a couple of tools locally on your machine already um, in the build process, in the whole supply chain actually, um, before you throw it at the Kubernetes API. And we say no, because in our cluster we have enforcers deployed with policies and sometimes your container image wouldn't check out and that causes friction that kills your time to market. It is not very good for continuous integration at all. You can't deploy like three times a day if you're not sure your image will check out. So if you have all this shift left uh, tool chain and uh, the stuff that makes you, you have to be able to use it. That's how we enable the project. So once uh, they're able to use it, they have the time to market in their own hands and they don't bother our developers and our operations engineers, our SRE teams. They don't get tickets because they have it in their own hand. They know if it will check out because they can enforce the policies or check if the enforced policies uh, on their image will work or not before they push it. That way you reduce friction, communicational overheads, you have a higher level of automation, uh, you can deploy faster, more often and in smaller in increments and you can react faster on customer expectation. Actually, that is uh, the core of today's uh, development or digital service portfolio creation in, in general. If you have a digital product and customer expectation is a fast-changing uh, phenomenon, you need to react fast. That's, that's the core competence. And that's, that's how we do it, actually. And if there's something uh, bleeding edge, like nobody knows how to do it, he's just perfect um, with us because we love to explore it with, with him. We take his hand we never let his hand go until he's successful in the cluster, happy uh, in a runtime, and we face the issues together and learn from it together. What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the release of Sourcegraph 4.0 and the Starship event just a few weeks behind us, it is super clear that Sourcegraph is becoming not just code search, but a full-on code intelligence platform. And I'm here with Joel Cortler, product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, this move from code search to code intelligence is a really big deal. How would you explain this feature, Code Insights, if you're just talking to folks in the hallway track of your favorite conference? Um, I would really start with the technical because before I was a product manager, I used to be an engineer as well. And it's really cool and exciting just to be able to say, we're going to turn your code base into a database. And the structured language that you need to interact is just the ability to write a code search. You know, literal search, that's totally fine. Regular expression, you know, that'll give you a few more advanced options, even a structural search. But the number of long tail possibilities it unlocks, truly the journey of building this product was just saying, well, we've just unlocked, you know, an infinite number of possibilities. We got to figure out some immediate use cases so we can start to, you know, invest in this product, build it and sell it. 
but we're only getting started in terms of the number of uses that we're uncovering for it. The story I told you about discovering like version tracking turned out to be a really important use case that wasn't even on our roadmap six months prior to discovering that as we were already planning to launch this product until we talked to enough folks, realized this was a problem and then found, well, oh, that's like a simple regular expression capture group that you can just plug right in because we really built this system to not limit the power of what we built. We don't want to give you like three out of the box templates and you can only change like one character or something. It's truly like the templates are there to hold your hand and get you started. But if you can come up with anything you want to track in your code base, you can do that with Code Insights. I love it. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you. Living inside your code base, your code base is now a queryable database thanks to Sourcegraph. This opens up a world of possibilities for your code and the intelligence you can gain from it. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. The link will be in the show notes. See how the teams are using this awesome feature again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. Again, this link is in the show notes. on good smooth onboarding is important right that's how everything starts is there a documentation that developers i'm trying to figure out whether it's how much of this is self-service versus let's work on this together there is a lot of uh, documentation especially because you have this uh, tid or the the iso necessities um, to document things but let's be honest your projects won't read that. It's like buying Lego and then really you read the manual or buying a new phone and you first read the manual. Nobody does that. And I mean, uh, projects are, are people too and they won't read your manual, uh, even if you have one. So make it a people business. Obviously, the first argument you hear now, oh, okay, Sebastian, nice one, but can't scale. This guy can't scale, right? I can prove that wrong because it scales way, way better than self-service and um, anything like uh, automation and anonymous pages can do because you create shared competences with every onboarding. With we onboard a new team, that's people. And they learn from us during that onboarding. If it's a self-service... They dig through stuff and they don't learn anything. Basically, they just make things happen and maybe they find some errors, but they won't report it. And as long as it, it works, yeah. But during our onboarding, it's like a professional services layer. We get in touch with the people. We deploy the first workload together. That's what I mean. We take their hand and we lead them to success, whether they want it or not. And you, you'd be surprised how <laughs> how much are not too interested in having success. But once they had it and have the feeling again, they start to burn for something. They become passionate about something. Yeah. And that's also this, this human component. If you put that first, this real, real human component and with bad days, good days, and you have a positive attitude in the team and you like ignite that spark to them and they love working with us they really enjoy it and they learn from us and 
the second, the third and the fourth project works like a self-service afterwards because they know what to do already. So they're completely enabled with everything. And it's way faster than him reading through a manual is us showing him how it's done properly. And every, every project is different. We have so many projects and we kind of didn't identify a single project that is like 100% the same as the other one. Sometimes they have a different uh, database. They want uh, some different cloud native service connected with their cluster or with their namespace or with their container, whatever. Everybody has some slightly different uh, stuff going on. And if you have a self-service, you have a different problem. You have projects putting requirements on your platform and you have an ever-growing backlog that, that will rip you apart in two years. Yeah. So um, if you individually solve all these problems 20 times with 20 projects, then you have a community, a community of happy people um, successfully working with your platform. And that is scaling way, way better than self-services mm -hmm. and ticket bonanza because they help each other, you know? Yeah. How much do the developers that work within the competence center, the ones that maintain the platform, learn from those engagements when they work with someone that's trying to onboard something? That depends. Uh, obviously, um, we have developers with a very deep insight into app development as well to really understand uh, the other side. And uh, this, this great mix of... Um, our principal operations engineer and our uh, principal um, platform engineer and cloud engineer makes makes the perfect combination actually to have a guy really automating everything on the infrastructure and uh, the other one saying, hey, dude, I need to keep that alive. <laughs> Slow down a little. And these guys in combination, they obviously learn a lot about the requirements um, projects have. And once we identify an 80-20 case, we say, okay, 80% of, of, the, of the projects need this and that, then we created a managed service on a platform level. But it needs to be 80-20 first. When it's um, below 80% of the projects demanding something, we just don't do it because uh, you can do that yourself. We are very open. Our platform focuses on just two things, security and runtime. And when you focus on security, you can, I mean, I can reroute some cloud native services. It just doesn't make sense because it will be more expensive than from the cloud provider directly. And it will lose a couple of nines behind the comma. So I can, I cannot create a better service and it won't be cheaper. So I won't do it. It's not a business case. I see. So why did you pick Kubernetes? I didn't pick it. You, the competence center. Why is it called the Kubernetes competence center? Why is it, why is it in the name? I think that's important. Yes, I explained the history. I joined uh, a team of uh, two passionate Kubernetes engineers. And that's it. That was it. It was just us three. And, and they uh, created something for the e-tron, charging cables, a charging function in 2017. And they used Kubernetes for it. And when I joined Audi, they already created a Audi proprietary uh, Kubernetes control plane, uh, focusing on deploying into EC2 directly or on 
then when EKS came out on the first abstraction layer on, on EKS. So from there on, we went and we focused on, on Kubernetes. And that's what I told you before. I was not like saying what we have to do. I was asking them what they want to do. And they wanted to do the Kubernetes. And I was like, okay, then let's be the best. I, I don't care what we do, but when we do something, let's be the best. And from there on, uh, we grew, we delivered, we had more projects, we had platforms, we created bigger platforms. Um, at a certain point, we consulted other platforms, we delivered infrastructure as code to other platforms. We have a cross-platform delivery center for middleware, for example, container image scanning, container runtime scanning. And we supply consulting to other platforms and that was the point where our product was not the platform itself it was being there for all the platforms and that's that was the point where it was a competence center and um, now uh, we consult platforms that will be created and we allocate platforms in the right layer because some business platforms focus too much on the infrastructure layer that they can actually abstract they don't need an infrastructure they can consume like 12 clusters from us with uh, all the heritage that we give them it's very beneficial if they don't do their own infrastructure in this case and focus on their business layer and say okay we have a platform focusing on security and on uh, runtime yeah so if you have a business platform and you want some machine learning data analytics or whatever you have a couple of managed services that your projects want to focus on also, you have a different set of burst workloads. So you probably want a consumption-based chargeback model and not like 80% capacity and uh, hands-off. Mm -hmm. So in terms of workloads, what runs on these platforms? Because it sounds it's like more than one. There must be a lot of workloads that run. Are they stateful? Are they mostly applications? What do you run? Whoa, uh, the company is quite big, you know. Um, there is literally of everything. There's literally everything. Just how big? That's what I'm trying to, like, is it thousands of applications? Is it hundreds of stateful instances of databases or caches or whatever you run? In total, probably, uh, yeah. In total, it's, I think, 6,600 projects or something like that. You don't know if they're all active. So there's, like, maybe many, many projects that are not even active. And... In terms of our platform, is one of the smallest platforms in the uh, VW group. And we want to keep it that way, actually, because um, we want to have a big, how you say that, PUC uh, case for new technologies as well. So we want to be early adopters in technologies. And if we have 6,000 projects running on our uh, 200 clusters or something like that, that won't work anymore. Mm -hmm. I see. <laughs> so we can't be the competence center and have the biggest platform. We need the smallest platform and, and that way we can really uh, be bleeding edge and create POCs with new technologies, with new vendors, try out things. And then we can consult new platforms and old platforms in adopting new technologies. And this adoption port is actually a new product. It's a cross-platform delivery center. So we don't, something that we do for our own platform in terms of security, often in other platforms is just a license. 
but zero adaption. So we need to help them in the adaption. We're spending uh, on our security experts a tremendous amount of money, actually. And other platforms can leverage that. Just imagine if everybody needs to have two or three security, and you, you should have that, two security experts in each platform. We have 33 platforms. 66 security experts, we would be the biggest IT security company in Germany, <laughs> probably. So, um, and, and if you know the market, that's not possible. So this kind of uh, thinking is really leveraging. Uh, I avoid the term synergies since a couple of years, but that's the way to leverage the benefits of our infrastructure as code our adaption and our maintenance, that our efforts in general that we put into security, others can leverage that very, very easily. Okay. When it comes to the things that Audi runs, right, there's like a lot of stuff. There's the cars becoming connected, right? There's like more and more data coming from the car, data being sent to the car. There's, there's more cars that are, you know, coming online. How much of that do you get to run on your platform? Like I said, the platform itself, we have many workloads that develop that kind of stuff. But um, the connected uh, car stuff, the in-car software that actually runs in the car uh, in a productive state and uh, customers are using that, uh, that needs to run somewhere else and on different kind of systems. You don't want that you also like comparison with an airplane. You don't want to ride an airplane that has an over-the-air upgrade. Maybe. I, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. You, you get the idea, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, over-the-air is, is a very nice topic, by the way. It's controversial. It's not that easy. And uh, obviously for some parts of the software, it's great. But other parts, you don't want it. You want an engineer looking at it physically when you bring that to the workshop. And uh, in terms of software, um, these kind of upgrades uh, that are great, um, but only for a couple of things, not for all the things. And um, in terms of connected car or in-car software in general, there are many, many, many uh, engagements and things going on in the VW Group on a group level, but also at Audi itself. Um, and... I think there will be many workloads developing that stuff, but just a few very dedicated platforms running that stuff. Mm -hmm. So when you take those happy, passionate people and when you take technology that's secure, that, you know, you really understand how it works and there's a process that ensues when you combine these two, how does it translate to day to day? We all have incidents. We all get to see them, to deal with them. There's always zero-day exploits. How does what you do change how people approach problems like those? Well, first of all, the shared responsibility philosophy in the platform or in the culture itself with a higher enablement of projects and users and workload teams, project teams, creates a net of people who are actually understanding what just happened. Most of the incidents uh, that we face in infrastructure are, are led by hysteria 
like a sort of hysteria. They have no idea what just happened, but it must be bad. Let's escalate it. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and many, many things just are not that bad. So in terms of alerts, first of all, just create an alert when you want it to wake you up at four in the night and you want a reaction time of one minute to solve the issue. So the alerts, they need to be really, really in place and trustworthy. Then if something really doesn't work anymore, um, worst case, like production failure, we can't build cars anymore in the night, then obviously that's a different kind of story. But to talk more abstract about the people working with it, the higher, uh, I would say, competence or the more broad competence of everyone working together and everyone knowing each other because the onboarding was not a self-service mm. creates a family-like, team-like, cross-silo uh, family of people that solve something, that don't blame something to other silos. They have been there together deploying that and they will be there together solving it. And uh, that is just a way different approach than throwing tickets around, um, you know, operations, blaming development, back end saying front end, hey, what did you do? And, and then the guy in the middle who says, yeah, I have to manage here three different companies and my own company who does operations uh, blames uh, a fourth company that I haven't even heard of. What's wrong here? <laughs> so um, mm. this is really different. In our platform, even all the companies that contribute to the platform, like I want them to know each other. I want the SRE from the team that manages the cluster know the guy and the contact from the container image scanning software and from the layer seven file from the WAF provider. I want them to know each other. I want the engineers to know each other. And in the worst case, um, I can bring them together within 10 minutes. And it's a different kind of story if you have contracts. Obviously you have SLAs, we have contracts. And if, if something really, really bad happens, obviously we can rely on them, but nobody pulls up a document and says, I'm not responsible for this in my team, ever. We don't do that. How do you scale and do you maintain that? Because all I see is like lots of people meeting and talking and figuring stuff out. When people work together, like multiple people like this, are they, I can't imagine them being in meetings constantly, right? They must be working together. So how does that happen? How do you get people to work together that maybe are not in the same physical location on the same problem that crosses multiple departments. How do you do that? Um, actually, I even have to add their calendar is empty. In my team, I take care that they usually don't have anything else in terms of meetings than 15 minutes in the morning with me. That's it. Obviously, we have review meetings, we have refinement meetings. We have some look at this technology or some breakout sessions here and there. Then we have onboarding meetings with projects and stuff, but usually it has nothing to do with an enterprise bullshit bingo that usually takes place or that consumes 50% of your time. Then again, um, we create 15 minutes meetings. We have like a 15 minute uh, on Wednesday with all the open shift platform owners, for example, just one control plane. We have many control planes, uh, but I just mentioned one now. And with all, they, they face a couple of issues. 
that are similar. Obviously, they use the same control plane, which is the control plane, f focusing on this one. And in 15 minutes, we don't solve the issues. We organize the people that need to go to different breakout sessions. So I just need to know who knows what and who wants to work on the problem with um, the guy that has the problem. And that's it. I can do that in 15 minutes. And then off you go. And next problem, uh, okay, here, who can help? Here and there, okay, off you go. And then in 15 minutes, we sorted out everything. And just imagine 15 minutes for the entire VW group, expert group on one control plane technology. That is like usually it takes, some people do days, yeah, breakout sessions, uh, workshops, and we just do 15 minutes a week. That's enough. Consistently, continuously coming together is more important than one workshop every three months and nothing happens. So that is how the calendars are empty. And then you have uh, time to really uh, work on stuff, actually, to be efficient, to get into a certain kind of flow that is very rare in enterprises because all the time you get calls and whatnot, um, people talking to you. And I get really, really angry with people that call my developers directly, unless I invite them for lunch or something. That's, that's fair, yeah. But if it's a work call and they uh, strip them from the flow, that is where I step in and say, no, you, this entire team is being protected by me, you talk to me, anything you want. And I decide if we need a developer to answer that or not, or if an intern can do that, because most questions, to be honest, my interns can answer that. Mm -hmm. How large is your team? With internal and external, um, we have 14 people right now in the team working on the different platform products. But that is not the real scale of it because there are so many other people contributing to it. This is just a core team, you could say. We have very, very strong core team of uh, three people. And then we have an operations department that is being created in Audi Hungaria, where we enable and create a cloud uh, capability, cloud competence center in Audi Hungaria. We're recruiting there right now. So if you're from Hungary, uh, you're near Gyur and you, you're listening to this, you would join my team. <laughs> okay. okay. Indirectly. And maybe we should promote it a little more over there. I, I will talk to, to the Hungarian guys. And then uh, obviously we have uh, external people because um, hiring at Audi uh, or, or VW Group is not that easy, actually. The positions are always combined uh, with so many other things that it's sometimes easier to just uh, go to suppliers and say, guys, I need some architects, I need some developers, give me a price. And the difference is that they are really working in the core team. It's not like we treat them uh, any differently processualized uh, from a processual point of view and from a legal point of view obviously we do that so we are compliant with all the rules about treating external people they cannot sit we're completely remote anyway so nobody comes to the office so all these problems we don't have them but like on, on events where we meet with our suppliers and stuff it, it feels like a family coming together actually and that's the nice thing over there in, in this team and I'm really proud of having a team like this 
where no matter from which company you are, you're in that team in the Kubernetes Competence Center at Audi and it feels like family, no matter from which company you actually are, from which team you have contributed into the products, into the deliveries and deliverables. And um, that is really, really interesting to watch and see. Mm -hmm. I can see how a small, close-knit team is very important for this working as well as it does. And then they're really passionate about what they do, they inspire others, and they create this community effect where others, you know, join, they pick up on that, they learn this approach, they see how well it scales and they take it further. And then it's almost like you're inspiring others in this approach, less about growing your team, becoming really big, because once you have 50, 60 people, managing 60 people is very different to managing 14, even up to 20 people, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. Also, you must ask yourself if that is really useful. So um, when I look at all the other platforms, their teams are even smaller, but we have more deliverables. We have like a cross-platform delivery center for security middleware. We have professional services. Obviously, we need a couple of more people. But in, in general terms, when I take the SRE teams, they are not in that team size, obviously. It's where I want to create value add. To be honest, any kind of control plane for me is not a value add. We have some requirements to it, obviously. It, it shouldn't be heavyweight. It should be easy to use. It should be flexible. It should be state-of-the-art. Uh, in the best case, and there is a Kubernetes upstream from that team um, really going to the cloud native community. So I also decide on the open source side and if it contributes to cloud native and I strongly, strongly go into the direction of um, upstream technologies, actually. They're more future-proof than proprietary tech. And uh, this is not a belief, this is just a fact that you can see from which technologies survive once they're bought uh, by a company and... It's more proprietary from a, a freemium model or whatever. They survive another two years and then they're gone. We have seen that from 2017 to 2019 and from 2019 to today with the control plane market in general. It's just a couple of players left. And the same with uh, all the other uh, things going on in cloud native. Might be core technologies like uh, Jaeger or or other things uh, that we Prometheus um, that we use constantly and they're incorporated by big vendors. They have to use the upstream technologies and it's the open source community against the hyperscalers and the open source community proves to be stronger. And that's, that's really great to see. And from a business perspective, it just gives you the edge if you go with the open source community and you get an enterprise support by some vendor because you need to have that don't forget the slas at all they're important to be uh, in place but you need to have a culture beyond the sla to be very effective mm.
Hey friends, this episode is brought to you by my friends and potentially your friends too at Fire Hydrant. And I'm here with Robert Ross, founder and CEO of Fire Hydrant. And Robert, there are several options out there for incident management, but what is it that makes Fire Hydrant different? The reason that we think that Fire Hydrant is is onto something is because we're meeting companies really where they are. We face the same problems that every company in the industry that is building and releasing software is also facing. So where you want people to be able to sign up for Fire Hydrant and immediately be able to kick off an incident using the best practices that we've built and we've experienced and have gathered through the other amazing customers that use our tool. It really is a very quick time to value. And we want people to have a long jump from where they are to where they want to be in incident management. I love it. Thank you, Robert. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all Fire Hydrant features included. There's no credit card required to sign up. They are making it too easy to get started. So check them out at firehydrant.com. Again, firehydrant.com. What is it like to work with a cloud native ecosystem with the CNCF, Linux Foundation, and also the cloud native community? What is it like? Because you've been doing this for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, I've been creating the partnership um, with the Cloud Native Computing Foundation in 2019. And also, I really learned and liked a lot how the cncf community works thinks and builds and creates uh, we also have in audi something that we call inner source where you can contribute uh, to uh, certain projects eliminating bottlenecks actually because the backlog doesn't reflect your necessity in the project but you can do it yourself right you can solve that issue yourself contribute it and we leverage it as a core maintainer for everyone Something like this. And the same happens in, in cloud native community. So everybody has a slightly different approach to some things or some different priorities. But you can create that. You can solve that issue. You can solve your number one priority, which is maybe number 10 for the entire community. Okay. But you can solve it and you can contribute it. Then it's there and it's leveraged. And you profit from leveraging project teams that are concentrating on the other 10 priorities or the other nine priorities and i must admit that uh, working with the community and the technologies has proven to be the best business case out there and it needs to be a business case you can't be sustainable without making it a business you can't be idealistic without making it a business it needs to be a business in the end it needs to be a business case otherwise change doesn't work nobody changes anything unless it's a business and that is uh, something that i uh, really saw happening actually and uh, cloud native taking off or cloud native technology uh, taking off in the enterprises because it is a business case and it's an easy one it's a very easy one you have two developers in your company contributing to that and the other 4998 developers they do something too. So you can uh, maintain your fork for the next two years with your two guys until the first breaking change happens and then you're done. 
your project is done, your focus, you can never touch it again and hope the entire ecosystem it touches will also not, never be touched again. But uh, you get the idea that doesn't fit modern development at all. It doesn't fit progress at all. So that's not working. That's from a technology point of view. I've also been in the CTO summit um, of the CNCF last year. No, this year. This year, actually. It's 2022 still. It's so cold, it feels like it's already next year. <laughs> <laughs> and and we've been working together with the CTOs or head of infrastructures from Allianz, Mercedes, Santander, Ivory, TikTok, Spotify, Orange. And it was really very nice to see that we have similar issues, enterprise issues, like you can separate it into big company bullshit and into um, real technical requirements. And what is uh, very fascinating is that our approach um, that I've introduced at Audi to put people first, let them use cloud native, in this case, cloud native tech and explore it and automate it and let the process follow from that. Like the handover process between friction walls is completely eliminated through cloud native shift left technology. And the automation is a, is a very natural process. And when you do that in, in one enterprise and you can inspire, let it be one CTO per keynote. And I do like 25 keynotes a year. And that will actually make the life of all your operations teams and the company and the developers a lot easier. They will not be called at four in the night for some stupid incident because they had a container image not checking out through a policy and whatnot. Or less, let's say less. <laughs> <laughs> and it will make their life easier. The culture is just so positive, actually, in this way of working with projects and not very anonymously self-service, clicking something together and sharing competences, sharing passions, uh, working in communities. And obviously, it's just uh, more fun to be in teams like that. And people are happier. They're more passionate about something and it needs passionate people to create great products. It, it just won't work with um, people not being passionate about something. Making, putting up a great job, maybe. Yeah. You can do that for a while, but you will not do that for, for very long. And they're happier. And I, I tend to think that if I create like 200 happy people with every keynote in the end, and um, that's 200 parents uh, that have happier children in the end, because they can be there for them at home or whatever. Uh, and they have more time, more spare time. They nail their goals faster, which is also paying into a different type of uh, work ethic solve issues then have time and not trade time for money like you have to work eight hours a day then i trade eight hours a day now that's not what i want i want people to solve to get something done if the stuff is done and you're happy with it and it's a great product then off you go and if you nail that in two hours now because you have the tech for it and the process doesn't hinder you off you go <laughs> i don't care and then you can focus on the next issue or take a half a day off because nothing's burning. 
and it's more relaxed. And like I said, and the, the end quote here is really, the people are happier. The, in this sort of culture, the people are happier. And you don't have too many levers. You don't have sick days. They're just happy. And is it work-life integration in the end? I don't know. It depends on, on each person. But uh, they're definitely happier. How does this bubble up all the way to the end user? This approach from the people that are building this technology, that are putting all the things together, that are working with other people. Let's not forget it's a very social activity what we do. How does it translate to the end user? It translates in, in hard business. And, and that, is, that is the charm of it. Because like I said, you can't make change happen, cultural change or people happier without actually creating a business out of that. And one of the strongest KPIs and the easiest to understand is, is time to market. Like I said before, you have friction in, in a silo structured enterprise. You have handover protocols to operations. There is no DevSecOps. I mean, you can do separate DevSecOps teams for a dedicated use case, sure. But you can't do DevSecOps in a, a plan, build, run, structured enterprise with silos. It's just there are SLAs, there are handover protocols where this SLA goes into that SLA, these terms and conditions, and here maybe there's even a gray zone in between two terms and conditions. But you're still one company, right? You're still one group. The VW group is one group. And we don't tend to think uh, this is Audi stuff, this is VW stuff, this is whatever. Uh, we just solve things together. And if you if you go to the very end of, of the supply chain to the developer and you reduce all the friction between through uh, enabled people and communities that know each other, that talk to each other and that uh, know the technologies that they're using and mm -hmm. they're using it for eliminating the friction walls uh, in these handover protocols, then you have the advantages of a DevSecOps teams mm -hmm. and also the advantages of a silo. And a big enterprise can't scale DevSecOps teams. They can only scale in silos. And that is organizationally not possible otherwise. So it's not fight the silo, eliminate the silos. No, you need this. A silo is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It has advantage. That's why we do it, right? for 100 years already. This philosophy of creating one team doesn't necessarily go against creating silos. So uh, you can uh, work your way through all these uh, friction silos culturally and with people in tech. So once it's automated, it's even a cross-silo process to deliver your build that you've created automatically into the cluster and all the handover protocols, they're done. All the scans, mm -hmm. the container image scans, the, uh, the ingress, the controls, everything is done. Mm -hmm. uh, you can automate that and you can okay. like out of the automation, you can create a process out of that for the organization. So you've been doing this for some number of years. Is there one or a few things that you wish you knew before? No, uh, the answer is no, but because of a very philosophical uh, approach to life, in my case, 
Mm. Uh, I don't, I don't want to regret or not to have uh, learned something uh, a different way because I could only be um, the subsumption of my experiences that I am today because I didn't have them before and mm. everything that happened in life, the good, the bad, the ugly, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it was just because I was that person, that moment, that very moment. And I'm very happy being the person that I am today. So now I, uh, obviously everything would have changed life, work, everything, I literally, if I knew the stuff that I know today at a different point of my life. And that would go in terms with regret. And mm -hmm. I don't regret anything. I think it would have changed your path and you enjoy the path that you have been on. And I think anything to have changed that. Yeah, it wasn't very enjoyable uh, to be honest, but I learned very valuable lessons, probably mm -hmm. the very, uh, the, the hard way. Yeah. But it's okay. It's, um, I needed that. Right. So for someone that's stuck with us throughout the entire episode, is there a takeaway that you would like them to have from our conversation from today? One thing that they should remember because it feels important to you or it is important to you? Yes. Personally, what I just said, I think it's important uh, to give everything in your life one life, one shot, give it all you got. Mm -hmm. And work-wise, uh, many people see walls where there are none. And only because something might be there, just go back and, and eliminate yourself from the equation. Be selfless. Professionally-wise, be selfless. Mm -hmm. You don't exist. Just think uh, very abstract. And that is the only way we can incorporate a change in enterprises because it has been a system of headcount and budgets. There are so many political battles uh, originating from uh, egos, from vanities, from fighting for a euro more at, at the Christmas bonus or whatever, but it really is something you spend so much time of your day. It needs to make you happy. If it doesn't go away. Okay. So keep looking for your happy and don't regret anything because everything is a lesson that propels you forward, gets you into a better place. Take it as such. Don't be petty about things about that euro that you didn't get. <laughs> Life is too nice and too short to be worrying about silly things that ultimately don't matter. Okay. That's a good one. If you work in an environment that you're happy with, you can really create great things and you can fight the status quo always, but choose your battles wisely. You can invest so much energy into something that you can't change. Mm. And that is in relationships. Sometimes it hurts, but you need to go away because it sucks out the energy of you, but it's also in your work. Don't forget that if you have the same feeling in your work that you can't change things that need to be changed and you can't accept them, this will uh, drown you in secondhand problems that you mm. don't want to have. It will make you unhappy. 
So you don't necessarily need to accept things. Always fight the status quo. Always abstract problems like, um, what if we do it this way? Or, okay, we have a process here, but what if it were not here? And what can we do about it? And choose your battles wisely. Invest your energy in the 80-20 use cases where you can have 20% energy but 80% impact because that is where the fun really is. If you optimize the last 20% and you lose yourself in that, that is something that you can leave to Audi engineers optimizing the sound of your car closing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they're passionate about it. For them, it's the 80%. So yeah. there will be someone that identifies your 20% as his 80% and will be very passionate about it. If you're not the one, tell people that you're not the one. Find your happy place. Somebody will be there and finding something. They Usually our companies are so big. There will be someone. Yeah, that is a good one. That is a very, very good one. Thank you for sharing that. So for people that want to listen to you talk, I know you have a few conferences coming up. Uh, some keynotes, any that you would like to share with us to know where we can listen to you next? Oh yeah, I'm I'm very excited about it actually. Just let me see in the calendar. I'm going for the first time to Eastern Europe now. This is it Eastern Europe. It's uh, Bucharest and Belgrade in November. Okay. okay. So that's for me for the first time in that tech scene. I didn't have any touch points with the Eastern European tech apart from Ukraine mm -hmm. and uh, Poland, by the way, uh, I see more like central European um, mm -hmm. scene. They're very close to us. So it's Belgrade in 15th, 16th and 17th November. Mm -hmm. And I'm really looking forward to that. And also we'll be joining Katie Gemanji from Apple. She will uh, be joining there as well. I think we talked a little about it. I think out of the same interest. We've never mm -hmm. been there. Must be fun. Okay. okay. And it seems to be a beautiful city. What's the conference name? Do you know? DSC, Data Science Conference. Okay. And I don't know where the Bucharest one is actually or when. I've, ah, the Go Tech Summit in Bucharest is on 4th of November. Could be an interesting one as well. You never know that uh, unless uh, you've been there. Mm -hmm. I've had conferences where it was like, you know, on container days, it's it's amazing. It's my most important event after uh, KubeCon, CNCF mm -hmm. KubeCon in Valencia this year, for example, or next year in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And it's in Hamburg, by the way, container days in Hamburg. It's just perfect city to have yep. a container days and a uh, very good event. But I have been to events as well that were like very, very strange. And I was like speaking, hopefully in front of a wider audience online mm -hmm. because offline it was like empty. Yeah. <laughs> so you've, you've, uh, you have, have these events where you speak in front of 10,000 people, 8,000 online, 2,000 offline. And then you have events where you're just not sure why you're even there and you just yeah. want to go home. <laughs> I see. But that's, that's the same, same feeling as you have as a musician mm -hmm. when you're touring, right? You're playing yeah. good concerts, you're playing fun concerts, um, and you can make the best out of every situation. But as I said, very initially, why I do this, what I do, 
if there's a small conference and there are just 10 people, but you inspire 10 of 10 or one of 10, that's enough. If I inspire one of 2000, fair, I have maybe better chances of finding the one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, if I inspire one of 10, it's the same thing. So it's just a very, yeah, it's a numbers play, right? So mm -hmm. the chances are higher on the bigger events, but it doesn't make a small event bad, actually. Yeah. A one-to-one -one talk could be just it. It could mm -hmm. just create a huge amount of change somewhere. So take every chance. And I'm, I'm really thankful for the people coming to these events and listening to me, sharing philosophy, knowledge, also giving me their input and their thoughts about it. And that is very valuable for me mm -hmm. uh, as well. And it's the only way for me to get better and enhance uh, with the more perspectives that I have because traveling and that's like everybody knows that traveling enhances your uh, empathy, your perspectives, mm -hmm. your way to uh, reflect yourself um, because you just have more uh, comparisons out there yeah. than having nothing because you just have yourself and you just uh, do stuff the way you always did stuff. And these travels, uh, and there are a lot, they are not only a driver to uh, inflict change somewhere else, but they're also a driver to change me, to yep. reflect on me, to reflect on what I'm doing. And that's the way how I can enhance all these theories, all these ideas, and put them into action and try them. Also to find new tech, right? Yes, for sure. I'm super excited for you. I was recently uh, at Cloud Native Day in Switzerland. Uh, it's not a big conference by any stretch. I think up to 300 people, between 250 and 300, and it's a two-track conference. But some of the conversations which I had were so amazing. I really enjoyed myself, including the one with Katie. She was one of the speakers too. I was a speaker at the conference. It was, it was a great one, had a great, great time. So... I'll make sure to add the link from your talk, the one from Container Days, and even the others from the other conferences, if they will be recorded, I can add them after the show goes live. So if new links appear in the show notes, uh, that's what it is that explains it. I'm really looking forward to your future talks, the ones coming up. I hope they will be recorded. And uh, it was great talking to you, Sebastian. An amazing, an amazing conversation. I've learned so much from you. And the thing which might key takeaway is your calm manner. Whatever you're doing, it works because you're so relaxed about it. And it's not for lack of responsibility or lack of impact. It's your philosophy. And I really like it. I think it's a very healthy one. Thank you so much. Actually, it's peace on a meta level. If you, you don't need to know the solution, that's operational level, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need to, you just need to know you can handle everything life throws at you. No matter yeah. what, life goes on and it will work out. Even if it's horrible at the beginning, if it's a big problem, mm -hmm. you just need to know you will be able to handle it. And I don't need to know the solution. I just know I will find one. That's it. That's exactly it. We will, we will figure it out. And if you have that belief, everything else will fall into place. And everything is amazing. You know, it's even when it feels like it's bad, you're learning. People learn a lot more from mistakes, from failure. That when everything is pink, so that has its own purpose. Once again, thank you very much, Sebastian. I look forward to next time. 
Thank you for joining us today. See you soon. Bye bye. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com/master. You can connect with like-minded developers via changelog.com/community. Thank you fastly for the worldwide low latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your Firecracker VMs and WireGuard integration are really sweet, flooded IO. That's it for this week. See you all next week when we will be talking about a startup that requires a multi-cloud strategy. They run across AWS, Flutter.io, and GCP because each platform has specific strengths.